0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 2 through 4 this morning, uh, but we'll read down through verse 6. What you're about to hear really is God's word given to you. Please hear it. As what it is, God speaking to you as people. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The grass withers and the flower does fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, if you uh, have been either attending or listening to our Sunday school series on Pilgrim's Progress, you would know that uh, this morning we looked at life in the Interpreter's House in Room, specifically Room uh, Number Five. Uh, that the Christian life is not a life of ease. It's not um, sailing with the tide or going with the current but but it's actually a life of difficulty or a way we could describe it would be something like this. The Christian life is a life of perpetual warfare. The Christian life is a life of perpetual warfare, and if you would just look at the New Testament with, with eyes that would, would kind of look for those sorts of themes, you couldn't go very far without tripping over just the, the sheer number of times that Either the Apostle Paul or John or Peter or others would, in looking at the Christian life, uh, say in a well, in a sanctified way to us, like, listen, slow of heart and ear, there's more going on than what you see with your eyes. There's more going on, both in the world and in you, that, than simply meets the eye. And there's times where we would, well, pretty often, I guess, look at our life and look at the mundane pieces of our life and struggle to connect the dots of why this is important. And so looking for things that we deem important, we actually brush lightly over the things that are truly important. Brothers and sisters, the way that you live your Christian life in the seemingly mundane every day is vastly important. And it's vastly important for, well, several reasons, but not least of which is this. You engage every day in the warfare that is the Christian life. And if we... Don't. Uh, well, first, readily acknowledge that. But if we were to pretend as though we weren't in, war, uh, in in conflict, we would not act appropriately for it. Imagine a soldier in a in a active military conflict, pretending as though there were not real shots being fired pretending as though there was not an enemy out there seeking to destroy him, pretending as though that the enemy was not crafty and cunning and intentional and wicked. How long or effective do you think such a a soldier would be? Well, not effective at all. Or imagine if he used something besides his, uh, well, military-issued weapon system in the fight. Imagine if they reverted back to what we did with kids, where if you found a bent stick, it was a gun. Didn't matter what shape it was, you used it as a gun. Imagine a, a, a real soldier reverting to such childish tactics. Not even tactics at all. If we would just review the few verses within Colossians, we would quickly see that this is the thing at stake to which Paul is drawing us. Consider Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. He speaks of Christ who has created all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all these things were created by him and for him. So Even as he's talking about the the glories of Christ, he can't help but tell you, and the glory of this Christ that you serve, while he's over all the various and sundry, well, spiritual powers and authorities arrayed against you. You can see in chapter eight of, or chapter eight, verse eight of chapter two, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by empty philosophy and deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Paul says in chapter two, verse eight, watch out, Christian, you've got enemies and they're coy and they're crafty and they make it their intent and they're good at it of commandeering the mind and even the life of a Christian. Oh, with either distractions or vices they take captive those who are walking to the celestial city. Chapter 2, verse 15, Christ is said to disarm the rulers and the authorities and to put them to open shame, triumphing over his enemies. And so we would ask ourselves in this situation, well, what then would be needful in such a conflict? If we are at, in some form of, of conflict or warfare, and, I think we are, and if that is the daily life of a Christian, well, then we would we would want to know how such conflict ought to be waged, wouldn't we? It's one thing to say, engage in the conflict that is the Christian life, and it's a whole other thing to actually say, well, what does that even mean? In Pilgrim's Progress this morning, we talked about the the city that was only had by violent men and those who were willing to deal blows and receive them as they hacked their way to the celestial city. And so I would consider before our own hearts and minds, say, what has God given the church to wage the war that they are in every day? Rest assured, He's not left you defenseless. Rest assured, He's not. Uh, failed to give you a witness on exactly how this war is fought. But the odd thing about it is we tend to look in all the wrong places for how this war is waged. We think it's waged, this is in my notes, so it's dangerous, uh, by our Facebook statuses. The world will know that I'm a believer because it says so in my Facebook bio. They'll know because I put the occasional verse up, along with which team I hope wins today, uh, exactly how this is weighed. Well, I mean, we would look at silly things. While we might laugh at it, I guess I would put the counter question to you. How do you do it? How do you actually wage war? How do you actually fight in the kingdom of Christ? Some of the things we've looked at, you, in chapter 3, were told by God's word to set your mind on the things that are above and not on the earth. You're told in verse 5 of chapter 3, to put to death the things that are earthly. You're told in, in verse 12 of the same chapter, put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved. I mean, all these, these virtues that we speak of, dressing as the Savior Christ, of putting on Christ's likeness, and that is all involved in it, but, but how do we actually do it? Now, the answer that I'm going to give from God's word today isn't going to be something where you're like, man, never thought of that. But it's in the common, familiar, neglected things. The way that the Christian engages in the conflict that is set before each and every one of us is they take up the weapons of word and prayer. And you might hear them, but I was hoping there was an easier way. Don't despise the heavenly gifts that God gives you. And while we might think, ah, prayer is hard. Yep. <laughs> Welcome to being a Christian. you like, I get distracted. Yep. Welcome to a world that has YouTube. You will get easily distracted by so many things out there. And I would just, I, I would draw our hearts and minds and say, we, we need to see these things for really what they are, and rather than despise them, take them up by faith and engage in the task that God has for us. So we want to consider this under three headings this morning. The first is this. As a church, as a church family, we need to man the watch of prayer. As a church family, we need to man the watch of prayer. You'll see this in verse Two of chapter four, the apostle opens this section. You just got done talking about how we conduct ourselves in the home, whether it's husband and wife, whether it's parent and child, whether it's the uh, either slave owner and slave or employer and em- employee, and in all of these kind of domestic ways, those two found their place in the way that we live life and engage in warfare. Why is it important for a husband to lead? What's part of what God has laid out for them? Why is it important for a child to obey? What's what God has laid out for them? We keep looking for these, these far more complex things. The word of God is so plain, so clear in how we ought to conduct ourselves. And in this verse, Paul turns his attention to the weapon of, well, Watching and keeping watch in prayer. He says in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Or another, way, another translation might put it something like this uh, be constant in prayer. The way that he puts it in verse 2 is uh, I know you're like, it's 1121 and no grammar yet. Well, here's some it's a present active imperative. Means imperative, it's a command present would be this this is something we are to do as a regular habitual normal constant way of life it's not like you're saying hey christian pray one time check the box move on come go to the next level like no the christian life is a life of prayer the christian life is a praying life a Paul says in First Thessalonians five seventeen that the prayer is to be prayed without ceasing, and you might take a, take a step back from the New Testament and say, Well, where exactly? Again, Paul says it here. It's kind of avoidable in verse two. Continue steadfastly in prayer, and sure, he said that in First Thessalonians. But for how long? Going back, have have God's people been well commanded to pray? And it actually would find its place, you probably find it before this, but at least in Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, you might be, I memorized the Ten Commandments. I never read a thou shalt pray. Well, you would have found it in the, in the well, the third commandment. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Each of the commandments actually have a dual purpose, right? It's not just like, don't kill, you're like, okay, well, check. Well, what did Jesus say when he summarized it? It's not not enough to not kill, but what would the positive sense of that be? Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not enough to simply don't commit adultery. Actually, the positive would be be a faithful spouse. It's not enough to don't steal. Be generous, Ephesians says. Each of the commandments would have both a positive and a negative, a prohibition and a commandment. Well, the prohibition, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, actually has in it a, a commandment. Take the name of God rightly. Don't take it wrongly. What an invitation for you, no offense, but a nobody to take God's name on your lips. I mean, there should be a sense where when we consider prayer and we consider the taking of God's name on our lips and we think about it for just like two seconds, you should ask a question. Who am I? Of what house am I? Or of what parentage am I? That I would take God's name. The only way you can do that, Christian, is because he's given it to you to take prayer is given to you as as a gift, as an undue honor to take God's name on your lips and to know that he'll hear you, and to know that he delights to answer prayer, and to know that God delights to use prayer. All of those are a gift that you didn't deserve, you don't earn, you don't merit, But that's never stopped him from giving good gifts. When we go to prayer and we say, as we were taught to pray, our Father, that is not a game of make-believe. That's not like, and I know I've used this before, I call everybody boss, even though they're not boss. My daughters wonder why I do it. There's no real good reason. It's not like we say father and we know like, well, he's not really father, but it's something we say. No, he. if you're a Christian, he really is your father. And as my children ask me things, I recognize that is but the faintest shadow of the fuller reality that is the Christian and their heavenly father. Earthly fatherhood and, and earthly, uh, well, having children, uh, those are shadows of the greater reality that is God making rebels into children through the gospel. And then in that gospel familial status saying, call on me, I delight to hear your prayers and to answer prayers. Maybe you'd even think to yourself, well, I'm not the most gifted Christian in the drawer of Christians. However you want to mix those metaphors, right? I'm not the sharpest Christian in the drawer. I'm not the most talented Christian in the drawer. Every Christian has this powerful gift of prayer. Not every Christian is gifted the same way, but all Christians have as their birthright prayer. And so rather than saying, I'm guilty of it, just like, just like you, well, you, um, how many times to get out of an awkward conversation do you say, like, yeah, I'll pray about that. And now you're all thinking, like, wait, he said that to me. <clears throat> or when we can't really help, what do we say? Ah, oh, I mean, guess all I could do is pray about it. As though that were some small, menial, nothing thing. The greatest thing you could do would be to actually to pray about it. What could you do in your feebleness that's greater than going to heaven's door as a son or as a daughter? Father, work on my behalf. Work on this brother or sister's behalf. Work in our, I mean, well, like you, you can do more than that? There's something greater that you could do? Then call on God's name, the Almighty, and ask Him to work? No, no. You can do more after you've prayed, but you actually can't do more before you've prayed. Paul, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, speaking to you this morning, says Christian, be constant in prayer, knowing our temptation is to let off the watch of prayer. Have you ever prayed about something for a long time and the answer wasn't swift and you stopped? That's why we need commands to be steadfast in prayer. It's not that because the Bible is ignorant. Of our weaknesses is actually, he knows our weaknesses. He knows we're prone to let off the watch of prayer. And so, as a gift of grace and mercy, and a high priest who knows us says, Christian, don't do that. Don't let off the watch of prayer. Rather, be constant. In prayer. Be steadfast, the ESV says in prayer. And that's not the only time or place that we've been told to pray. Matthew uh, 6, verse 6, Jesus says that the Father who sees his people praying in secret rewards them. I mean, that's Jesus who said it's not like me or one of you being like, you know, I think that God might do this, but I'm not sure. Like, no, Jesus says the Father delights to reward the closet prayers of his people. What more encouragement could we need than giving ourselves to prayer? Or just a few verses later, Jesus saying in Matthew 6, 9, pray like this, I'll even show you how to do it. Or in Luke chapter 18, verse one, it actually tells us why Jesus gave the parables that he did on prayer. He told them a parable to the effect, he's like, all right, here's what you should get out of this story. I'm thankful that the Bible talks that way because I'm slow. And I need him to be like, all right, here's what you should be getting out of this story. That you should always pray and never lose heart. I love that the Bible at times says, right, I'm gonna tell you a story. Two things you get out of it. Never get, uh, lose heart and always pray. All right, now let me tell you the story of the widow who sought justice from an evil judge, got it because of her importunity, and you knock on the door of a judge who's not wicked, but who's good and also happens to be your father. What more would I need to go and storm the gates of grace than that? Another one, that, if you've ever seen our living room, our friends bought us, they said it was a gift, but it just afflicts me every time I see it. It's this big framed verse from uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. They knew we had little kids. (laughs) And be constant in prayer. So each morning you go out into the living room and that's in huge letters on your wall. And while you could as I often do, take it as like, well, oh man, condemnation. What an invitation. What a beckoning. What a calling from a gracious father knowing that we need to be encouraged over and over and over and over again to even use his good gifts. We need to stop seeing prayer as this giant bummer of a thing that we always feel guilty on when it's preached. Like even now you're like, I didn't know this was what it was about. That was a dumb 80s song reference. I get it. I don't like, I'm convicted to it. I preach on prayer or hear a sermon on prayer. Rather than just taking it as a negative, maybe look at it this way. God in his kindness put this Passage before our hearts today, knowing we needed his tender mercy to call us again to prayer. To remind us again. Rather than the thundering of Sinai and the, you scrubs, pray more. Like, no, that's not what he's saying. Pray, my child. Call on me. My ear stands eager. I forget which Puritan it was. It might have been Bunyan. We'll just say it was he said, God is more eager to hear your prayers than you are to pray your prayers. Even your most desperate prayers, you think of those moments where you, you couldn't have been kept out of the prayer closet though an army stood against you. Someone you loved was sick or some, some terrible thing was crashing upon your head and you couldn't be stopped from prayer. Even in those cases, God is more eager to hear your prayers than you are even to pray the father as hearer of prayer and the son as, well, the the one who salts our prayers with the salt of his suffering and, and the spirit who helps us. I mean, all three members of the tree are engaged actively in your prayers. Like, how could it fail? What in God have we found to discourage us from prayer? Nothing. The only impediments to prayer is found in this wretched thing. I bet if we prayed about that, he'd even hear that. We're told to not, uh, we are told to positively be steadfast in prayer. And then he adds to that being watchful in prayer. There's that idea of, of vigilance, of spiritual readiness. It is actually a bit of a military terminology, keeping the watch, being a sentinel of prayer, watching both over your soul and the soul of others around you. That would indicate to us that prayer is not a, a lackadaisical, running over a few old same words, but a vigilance, a watchfulness, a readiness, a zeal, a desperateness is captured with that word to pray. It's actually illustrated for us in the church's book of, well, prayers, the Psalms, which Teach us how to pray. Psalm 130, verse 6, the psalmist, in describing his prayers for the Lord, says this, My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning. More than a watchman for the morning. Christian, as a gift, you are given the call to keep watch in prayer. Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7, God says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I've set watchmen all the day and all the night that they would never be silent. And here, listen to how he describes the watchman. As he does, he's actually describing prayer. You who put the Lord to remembrance. You, you remember the Lord, and you remember his promises. And it's not like you remember them, and you're like, oh, that's neat. It's like you remember them in like, Lord, you've said, do. That's putting God to remembrance. Now listen to what he says. You put the Lord in remembrance. Take no rest and give him no rest until he brings it about. You might say that sounds presumptuous. I wasn't the one who said it. The word did. Jesus said, never grow weary. Jesus said, let me tell you a story about a widow who wouldn't leave this judge. I mean, let me tell you about this friend who at midnight goes and knocks. I mean, think of all the times and the stories that Jesus used to encourage our dull, slow hearts. Pray. As this gracious invitation, pray. Remember me. God loves to see his handwriting. He loves it when a Christian on their knees Opens the word and says, Lord, you, I mean, you said this. He loves it when his, Christian, when, his, when his sons and when his daughters say, Lord, you've said you forgive. Do as you've said. You've said you'll strengthen in the midst of weakness. I'm weak. Do as you've said. You've said that precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. And as one that we love be thine. Lord, receive them, that they may dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Christian, we're to be watchful. We're to be constant in prayer. We need it. There's never a time in your life where you will exit the need of prayer, so you should be constant in it. It's a watchful, it's a, it's a warring uh, need that we have, and so we should keep the watch of prayer, and then we should also be, and now this is a bit of a curveball, uh, be thankful In prayer, you'll see it at the end of the verse. Steadfast in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. And then you might be like, why did he throw that in on the end? Like, hey, I need three things because that's what a good sermon has. So I'll throw thanksgiving on the end of this thing. Well, no. Actually, if we would just stop for a second and think about Paul's theology of the Christian life, it's actually a life of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. All throughout, in Col- just consider Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 3, we thank God. He actually does the thing. He gives thanks. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 1, we give thanks all the time. Verse uh, 3, well, verse 15 of chapter 3, and I should have turned to it before I started quoting it. talks about the, uh, the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts And be thankful. One verse later, 16. Let the word dwell richly, admonishing one another wisdom, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, with thanksgiving in your hearts. Or thankfulness. And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all giving thanks. Three verses in a row. It's like he knows we're a little slow of heart and hearing. Your life, when it is not self-focused, but Godward-focused, can't help but give thanks to God for all of his goodness. How long can you truly be before the throne of grace without thanksgiving just coming to the surface? Even in the midst of really hard times, God by his spirit draws forth thankfulness and thanksgiving and moves the child of God to where they ought to be we get so self-focused and so wrapped up in all the the nonsense of life that goes on that if we would but lift our eyes for a few brief, fleeting moments, wouldn't Thanksgiving bubble to the surface? Commentator by the name of Lightfoot says, thankfulness is the very crown of all prayer. Far from a tag on to the end of it, it's actually the crowning petition, or expression within prayer. Secondly, this morning, we want to consider that as a church, we need to pray for gospel opportunities. There, moving from the gift or the weapon that is prayer and being steadfast in it, watchful in it, and thankful in it, we actually need to then hitch that uh, concept of prayer or that activity of prayer with the ministry of the word. Look at uh, verse three. At the same time, pray also for us. Again, he's he's drawing both the Christian into the prayer closet individually, as well as invoking the church to pray corporately. We, we pray as private Christians, and we pray as a church family. Powerful things God does when churches pray together. Notice there's that Corporate nature. There's that active role in seeking the Lord. Paul is act or is asking the church in Colossae to pray for them, the apostolic team that is with Paul, and they're they're praying for a certain well a a result, or he has a prayer request, if we could put it that way. He he says, pray and pray for us, and pray that God would open a door. Now, those of you who've, who've been through however long we've been in Colossians, 28 weeks or whatever it's been, you would know that the setting of the book would be quite interesting and maybe slightly ironic at this point. Where is Paul as he's writing this letter to the church in Colossae? He's in prison. You don't think it's a little funny? He's like, yeah, pray God opens a door. <laughs> I, can't, I can't help but wonder how many prisoners... Didn't pray for much, but they prayed that. That's a side distraction. <laughs> he wants the door opened. You might say, oh, he just wanted to be free. Well, no, he actually talks about the door of opportunity, both a physical door. It's hard to go preach the gospel when you're locked up for, well, preaching the gospel. But also, uh, more than that, the, he, the door that he wants open is an opportunity for the word of God to be declared. So he's he's petitioning the church in Colossae pray that God would open opportunities for His Word to go forth. Do you think that that prayer request has lost its applicability? I don't think so. Should we be praying this in preparation for each Lord's Day? As a parent, you send your kids off during the Sunday school hour to go and hear the word of God declared to them by faithful Sunday school teachers. Should we not be praying for our children? That God would open the door? That the word would transform them? I'm sure you figured out as a parent you can't open that for them. If you as a parent could save your child, you would. You can't but you serve a God who can. And so we ought to be praying that God would open the door for the word to go out in triumph. We should pray that when the word goes out, whether it's our morning service or our afternoon service or a Wednesday, however, in whichever way the word of God goes out, we should be praying that God would open opportunities for these things to happen. I can't tell you just how, I mean, you would have felt it if you've, if you've ever invited a neighbor or a loved one, someone who doesn't believe the gospel, wasn't that a different Sunday for you? Didn't you feel just the weight of it? I mean, on a few different levels. You're like, I hope they're not weird today by they, the pastors. (laughs) You felt the weight. And then you see the bulletin, you're like, oh man, yeah, it's not looking like a good day. You felt the weight as the word was declared. Oh God, would the gospel be clear today? Remember, once Lacey and I, I won't say where we went to church, but it wasn't this one. And we brought a, one of her unbelieving co workers. It was an hour sermon on first century tax collecting practices. The lady fell asleep, and I was jealous. We begged her on the drive home, come back, please. That was a weird one. It was the history of the temple and what kind of animal skins were used. And I'm like, please, all right, you're talking about the temple. You gotta get to Christ. You gotta get to Christ. Christ the temple of God. Christ, Emmanuel dwelling among us. Nope. We were not successful in getting her to come back the second time, but she left well-rested from both. You feel the weight, right? I've I've felt the weight of wanting the gospel declared. Now, we should be declaring the gospel pointedly and clearly every Sunday. It's one of our goals, right? We, we, We want Christ to be on display every week. Because we're convinced it's the power of God to save. When you've brought someone with you, you've felt the weight. When you have a child who's not converted, you feel that weight. Be in prayer, brothers and sisters, please. That God would open, not just for us here as a church, gospel opportunities, but that he would do it for you. Have you ever tried to share with someone and just that day, like they're, they're just plum wasn't an opportunity. That should be grievous to us. We should pray that God would open those up. Do you think that he delights to hear prayers like that and then to answer them with yes? I think he does. Do you think if his people pray that his word would ride forth in triumph, that it will? I think it will. I think he's revealed in his word like he's super into that, for lack of a better way of saying it. But what is it that we declare? We've already alluded to it. He mentions it at the end of verse 3. That we would declare the mystery of Christ. That we would declare that Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that whoever believes in him will have eternal life in his name. We declare the mystery of Christ, which is, as he mentions in Colossians 1.27, it's the very hope of glory. So when we declare Christ from the word of God to any and all who would hear it, the, the message that is heard, it's, it's not simply as like a small thing, but it's, it's like clearly this. Christ delights to save really big sinners who are ruined because of their sin. He loves to do it. And if you're here, even this morning, and you say, well, I'm a huge sinner. Awesome. Like not, like, not that that's a good thing, but wait for the second thing I'm gonna say. He loves to save huge sinners. You might say, you don't understand how big my sin is. You're probably, probably right. <laughs> but you vastly don't understand how great his grace is. All who believe and we'll we'll push it just one step further, that there would be no one who hears my voice this morning who's too young to trust in Christ to clean their heart. And there's no one who's too old. Maybe you think I've spurned him for eight decades. If you call on his name, he delights to save. We should be praying that this happens all the time. I love it. I shouldn't say this, this, whatever. I love it <laughs> when people move to the valley, they're looking for a good church and they find Grace Community Church and they're like, hey, I'm a former Baptist like you. Aren't we weird? I'm like, yeah, we are. Welcome. We're a bunch of weirdos. You'll fit right in. Apparently that was too close to the truth. <clears throat> but what I really love is a sinner plucked from the fire who doesn't know the faintest thing. They don't know when to stand up, sit down, when to say amen. They couldn't find the book of Ecclesiastes if their life depended on it. That's awesome. That's what we need to see and long to see more of. Do I love it when he moves Christians here that are just like stout, awesome Christians? Yes. I love it when he saves ruined sinners from their sin. I love having to help someone find where on earth John's gospel is. And to like watch them read it for the first time. You're like, this is great. (laughs) You're going to read about the one who's like, you're going to spend eternity with him. I love new birth in Christ. We shouldn't be satisfied with a trickle. We should be praying for a flood of it. It's easy, Christian brother and sister. It's easy. It's easy to get comfortable especially in a big church. I'd consider this a big church. Maybe you're like, this is little. I consider this a big church. (laughs) It's easy to get comfortable and to stop praying that God would save people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, including the people in this valley. It's easy to get real comfortable with the people that we sit around us. Like, we got our seat, they got theirs, and there's no more left. Like, no. We shouldn't be satisfied. There should be a holy dissatisfaction that is nested in the heart of every Christian until Christ has all for whom he's died. He has not reached that yet. And so we should be seeking the throne of grace. Lord, more. There's more seats at the table, Lord. Bring them in. More that's why he gives the parable of the, the servants who go out in the streets and the byways and the highways and like the, the, the Nevada ways and bring them in, bring in all the cripples and the blind, and they'll fit right in here. That's the kingdom. If people say, "Well, I can't go to church, I'm a sinner. you'll fit right in. Or if they think we're a people who aren't sinners, you're like, "Hey, you haven't met us." We're pretty open about this. <laughs> we're not excited about it, but we're, we're honest with it. We're not perfect. We've never said we are. But we've been saved by a perfect Savior who's at work in our lives, and we delight to see him work. We should pray to that end as individuals and as a church. You might say it's uncomfortable when someone comes in and they don't dress like us, look like us, and know the hymns we know. Excellent. Growth happens in the uncomfortable. You might say, I don't like that. That's fine. Neither do I. I don't like being uncomfortable. But God grows us in it, doesn't he? God works in the uncomfortable. And this gospel, let's not fool ourselves, comes at a cost. Look at the end of verse 3. Paul's not ignorant of it, and neither should you. Paul's a prisoner because of this gospel. Paul suffered to degrees that you and I have not. Have not. But will your, your insistence on speaking the gospel lovingly and graciously, we'll talk about grace and, and speaking with grace in the second service today. But for now, when we preach the gospel, Pointedly and clearly to our surrounding communities. Do you think they'll be super into it? No. Is the gospel worth suffering for? Mm Mm-hmm. Whether that's on a family level or a bigger community level. If we don't have this settled conviction in our hearts, the gospel of Christ is worth suffering for. Guess what we're not going to be willing to do for the gospel? We're not going to be willing to suffer. Even the small stuff, like the awkward, inconvenient conversation. That's a form of, that's like a low-level form of suffering. Or they're going to think I'm weird. Like, you are weird. Just lean into it. It's okay. (laughs) Embrace it. Remove all doubt. Talk to them about Christ who rose from the dead. They'll think you're crazy or they'll get saved. We should be seeking this, brothers and sisters. And and I'm super convicted myself that that I'm personally not doing this enough. So would we all pray together for this end? Would we all seek to storm the mercy seat together? Lastly, thirdly, and in the 45 minutes we have remaining, We need to pray as a church for gospel boldness. Opportunity is one thing, but the boldness to go along with it is another. Have you ever seen an opportunity open up for gospel witness in front of you? And there was not the boldness to pursue it. I can say way too many times for me. Way too many times. So we need to pray one, that God would open those opportunities. And secondly, that we would have then the boldness to declare Christ in those. And you don't have to be like this, like George Whitefield fiery evangelist. He uses the common, everyday witness of his people. So you might say, I'm not, I, 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 I don't, I'm not a pastor. I didn't go to seminary. If you did, you'd realize that doesn't fix a lot <laughs> at all. He uses his saints to declare his gospel. He actually delights to do it that way. He delights to do it that way. Look down at verse 4. Pray that he would open the door, verse 3. Pray that we would make it clear, verse 4. So the idea, it's twofold. First, that there would be clarity. Have you ever felt like the need, when when you're sharing the gospel, and your thoughts they just get like jumbled up, and you're going like, I'm not even sure I know. Oh, no. And then you like <laughs> fall off into the doubt. I'm not the only one it's happened to. <laughs> and then you're filled with worry and doubt. You're like, maybe I don't know the gospel. Pray that your thoughts and your words would be clear. Pray that God would, I mean, you don't need to talk about the, the intricacies of the hypostatic union and the interworkings of the Trinity. Christ is God who became man who died for my sin and rose again. He can save you if you trust him. It could, could it be that simple? Could it be as simple as the, the deathbed words of a slave ship captain converted to a pastor and hymn writer who ended up writing a hymn that we all know named Amazing Grace? He said as his memory was fading and he couldn't remember hardly anything anymore, he says, I know two things. I'm a great savior and Christ is an even greater savior. I'm a great sinner. Christ is an even greater savior. He wasn't a savior. Christ <laughs> was. Maybe we could all have that simplicity of John Newton. To say, I, just know t- I know two things. I'm a huge sinner. And Christ is such a great savior. That he's able to overcome the greatest of sin. Oh, that we would have that kind of clarity. You don't need to take them through a systematic. You don't need to take them through all the Puritan paperback books you have on your shelf. Speak to them of Christ. Get them converted. And then through all the paper. Anyway. We also need to pray for boldness. Notice, you you might say, I don't see the word boldness in here. Second half of verse 4. Which is how I ought to speak. There's an oughtness to gospel declaration. There's a, there's a, a required, uh, like you actually have to open your mouth and say stuff or, or at least hand them stuff that says the stuff. However it is, we actually need boldness. And, and this is where um, we could take it one of two ways. We could look at verse four and say like, oh man, it's a double whammy. Prayer and evangelism, these sneaky how he put both of those in one sermon. I didn't, Paul put it in the same text. But anyway. Yes, we need to pray for clarity and we need to feel a bit of the weight of duty for it. But please, brothers and sisters, look at it from a different way. Christ is too great of a savior to not be spoken of. Please please look at it from the I love him. I must speak of him. If all we do is look at it as like this huge bummer that you have to do, otherwise you're a bad Christian, you don't want to be a bad Christian. Like if that's the way we think about it and talk about it, that's, that's not at all what I think God's word would be laying out before us. You need to be arrested with the beauty of Christ. Arrested with his worth. So that you're not happy that the people in your life don't love him like you love him. You're not happy that he is worshiped by so seemingly few. He's too great. He's too marvelous. He's too beautiful to not be spoken of. Oh, that the beauty and the value and the worth of Christ would compel the saints. What we need is for Christ to be be marvelous in our own eyes and then go and tell others about how marvelous he is. That will drive evangelism in the church far more than if we just tell each other, like, you gotta go do it. It's like your medicine, take it. Like, no, he's too great. He's too big. Do you think, Christian church, that if we as individuals and as a family give ourselves to prayer, that God would not hear us? We can't say it of Him. Do you think if we prayed as a church, Open doors for witness. Do you think he'd open them? I think he would. I think it'd be hard. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I think it'd be hard. Do you think if we prayed, Lord, make my words clear and bold, do you think he would do it? Do you think it'd be easy? I don't think it'd be easy. But is it needful? Yeah, it is. Because we live in a world as Christians where we have these two beautiful weapons by which we fight, prayer and the proclamation of the gospel. If we would but give ourselves to these things, we would see him work. In conclusion, it was said of Mr. Charles Spurgeon, the guy who was known as the Prince of Preachers, that he was visited one day by a group of young ministers and after showing them, they wanted, they wanted like Spurgeon to give them the tour of the church, which I'm more than slightly jealous that those dudes got that, but that's a different point altogether. He showed them the massive sanctuary, and, and after he showed them the, the, the pieces of the church the building that they wanted to see, he asked them, he said, do you want to see the boiler room? Which back then was like how you kept the heat on. It's like, do you want to see the furnace closet? They weren't really interested. But who's going to say no to the prince of preachers? So they went along with it. And Spurgeon took them down to the basement and he showed them the prayer room. And in the room, at that time, I don't know what service was being held, there were more than a 100 people praying. Spurgeon looked at the young man and smiled and he said, this is the church's boiler room. Asked later in life whether... Uh, What what the secret was to his ministry, Spurgeon said simply this, my people pray for me. My people pray that the ministry would go out. Oh, that we'd be a people who pray that God's gospel goes forth in triumph. Let's seek God together. Father in heaven, please work powerfully in us. Draw us to the closets of prayer and to our knees in prayer and that we would Be convinced and convicted and arrested with the knowledge that you delight to use prayer. You delight to use Christians on their knees to accomplish great things. And so, Lord, we we pray that you'd make us a praying people. We pray that we would be a people who seek your face for the ministry of the word to go forth powerfully. We ask, O God, that these would not be a few words we run over quickly but they would be the words of your children speaking to you, their Father, and not being embarrassed about making our hearts known to you. And so, Lord, we pray again, save our children. Save our loved ones. Save those in our community. Save our neighbors. Save for the glory of Christ, do we ask it. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.